This episode is sponsored by Patagonia. In 1972, Chenard Equipment bet the farm, urging climbers to stop using their best-selling product in order to protect the rock. Clean climbing, making the switch from pitons to chocks, fundamentally changed both the art of the sport and the ethos of the community. It was climbing's first environmental movement and instilled the values that drive Patagonia to this day. But more importantly, it was a challenge. What are climbers capable of achieving in order to protect the places we love? 50 years later, Patagonia is asking that question again. They're still committed to the vertical wilderness and putting style over summit. It's a commitment to the sport we love, their technical climb product, and the planet we're still working to save. Go to patagonia.com slash clean climbing to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Sterling. A wet rope is heavy, hard to handle, and can be flat out dangerous. That's why Sterling developed their new line of dry climbing ropes using Zero's technology. Zero's is a whole new way to manufacture UIAA certified dry ropes that are more effective, wear resistant, better for the environment, and only available from Sterling. Visit sterlingrope.com to learn more and use the code DIRTBACK for 15% off. And you can also find these links in our show notes. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode eight of season four, Creeksgiving. And this is a piece that I originally wrote for The Alpinist and um, was published in The Alpinist number 48. And this is a story that is really, you know, sentimental to me. Uh, it means a lot. It was an honor to get published in The Alpinist back in the day. You know, it was a must on my byline as a climbing writer. And um, pleasure to work with the editors over there. I think I worked with Katie Ives and Matt Salmon on this one. They were really both great to work with. And as we know, Creeksgiving just happened out there. I think the weather was good. I was out in the East Coast spending time with my family instead of my friends this year. Uh, this is a choice I've been kind of making more in that direction after spending so many Thanksgivings out in the desert, but I got nieces and nephews now, or a niece and two nephews, and really enjoy spending time with them, especially now that they're young. It's the holiday season, and the climbing zine has plenty of goodies um, for gifts for your friends. You can find a link in your show notes for 15% off anything in our online store just for our podcast listeners. And if you want to support this podcast, you can become a Patreon. And we'll leave a link for that in our show notes as well. All right, let's get into this piece. This is, uh, this is one that I really love. It really is a sentimental piece for me. And it makes me think of my friends out there and some wild times we had. And I'm really glad that we did them. I'm really glad we got wild. This episode of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter board. The Kilter board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilter board layout, and the newer home board layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. 
The new map feature helps you find and connect to kilter boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple ball sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. All right, let's get into the episode. No place soaks up the sun like the Johnny Cat hang at the catwall in the creek. The maroon cliffs are striped with perfect cleave fissures like vertical gateways into a hidden world. The desert heat can be oppressive, but in late autumn, the low golden rays cast long shadows over the walls. We, the climbers, all smiles, scrapes, taped hands, and colorful costumes are the gatekeepers against anything from the outside that might intrude. I'm reminded of Jack Kerouac and his beat generation. They left behind the post-war clutter of new televisions, shiny cars, and urban sprawl to climb mountains and collect frost-white granite, blazing meteors, and volcanic ash and words. We, too, live simply, beaten by wind and by stone, trying to access something larger, something enclosed in the rocks and in ourselves. We watch Mark climb that thing to the right of Johnny Cat. Mark wears a black and gold cape that glitters in the sun. The crack is so narrow that his fingers must feel as they're being run over by an 18-wheeler. He places tiny cams while the cape dangles and then flaps horizontally. This could be a movie. The maroon wall is the screen and our superhero is engaged in a battle for good. The villain is gravity, or perhaps doubt and fear. Our hero screams and jams and finds tiny edges for his feet. And then bam, he's flying off the rock. The crowd cheers. Another year of Creek's Giving is kicked off. An acid test of sorts for the climbing community, this non-event was born of friends gathering for Thanksgiving at the Super Bowl campsite in the early 2000s. There was a man they called the mayor, a stubble-faced sage who took care of everyone with a sly, welcoming grin. One year, it rains as it rarely does in the desert, continuously filling up the long-forgotten washes and ensuring that the Wingate sandstone is soaked for days. Sure, we could start drinking, but instead we stage a 4K foot race around the campground. I pull a variety of costumes out of a duffel bag. Our friend Sean, who is working for Nike, produces a bag of socks and hats as prizes. That night, we have a dance-off. People wrestle in the mud, grown men driven to madness by rain and alcohol on the desert floor. This is America's greatest foot race, Adam proclaims the next year. We run a half marathon beneath a dark blue sky. Just a handful of us, one wearing a one-piece cat suit, another a Luigi costume. We jog from Super Bowl to the distant ramparts of the South Six Shooter Peak 
and then Jumar up it before running back. Adam is a college friend from Gunnison, Colorado. When I met him, he was into ecstasy and raver parties. Then he grew up and sought adventure in other forms. He was once robbed at gunpoint in South Africa and told me, wide-eyed, it was so cool. He skis powder, floats rivers, loves women, and screams about cutting the rope, vertical limit style, at the climbing gym. His eyes are as blue and deep as glacial tarns. He's ready at any moment to erupt into maniacal laughter. (laughs) I follow his wild blonde mane through a wash, silent, moving slowly. My feet sink into the fine pink grains. My breath guides me through sand and stone. On the way back, we gaze at distant landmarks. North Six Shooter, the Cliffs of Insanity, the Happy Submarine. Six Shooter rises proud and lean like a crimson pistol. To our right is the submarine. It has all the features of a sub, including a tiny periscope. I fall behind. Adam carries on, his Jim Bridwell-inspired shirt glistening with psychedelic colors, and then he fades into the desert, disappearing behind a small hill. That night at the Super Bowl, the mayor attends to the turkeys. He wears a big black mustache and devil's horns. While we were running, he spent the entire day cooking six turkeys in carefully excavated pits. A group of 60 gathers around the fire, and each climber takes a turn stating what he or she is thankful for. At the dance-off, a man in a pink suit ekes out a narrow victory over a man who strips down to his underwear and sprays everyone with cheap champagne. The liquid is sticky, a sugary dew upon our faces. The following noon, 30 of us arrive at the pistol-whip wall. The bright greens and yellows of our outfits replace the long-ago wilted desert flowers. Adam has to leave for Salt Lake City. He and his girlfriend, Amber, say the things people are leaving Indian Creek say. Oh, sorry, we have to bail. I've got to work tomorrow. We'll see you soon, though, right? You're coming to Salt Lake this winter, huh? In front of them are the cracks in the secret world within the stone. Behind is the valley with its sandstone running to the horizon, the dusty floor dotted with cottonwoods and red willows, silent with the oncoming winter. When the weather is good and the body is able... No one ever wants to leave. We've just met Amber, and she jokes about writing us letters. I love people who write letters, and I tell her so. A month later, while skiing, Adam dies in an avalanche. 30 years old. I haven't known the death of a close friend until now, and part of him stays with me, a voice in my head. Sometimes it's if he's still there, standing in the iron-stained dust below the crag on that perfectly hungover, long-ago Friday. The next year, Sean builds a wooden stature structure he names Adam's Arch. It's the starting line for the races. By now, nearly all visitors to Indian Creek use the name Creeksgiving. The numbers swell in the Super Bowl. Our dinner table is long as Supercrack, with a hundred-person queue. During dinner, we have Timmy Folk's Television, our imaginary TV station, with programming ranging from the telephone game to mustache competitions. Revelers wear rabbit costumes. There's a man with a horse head, a woman in a skin-tight fishnet top, and black leather pants. And there's pink, lots of pink, a pink wig, pink tights, and gold. So much gold. Sixty people pass a strip of LED lighting across our checkered linoleum dance floor. 
We dance until the stars fade into Alpenglow. Creeksgiving has grown to be too big. We know it. Apparently, so do the authorities. The following spring at Creekster, a knockoff mini-celebration during Easter, we catch the Utah police spying on us behind the bushes. We decide to have fun with them and stage a silent mustache competition. I imagine those officers back at the station. Well, Sarge, we tried to bust those hooligans, but they were actually really quiet. They did hold a mustache competition, though. And then, just like that, our Creeksgiving is over. We don't gather at the Super Bowl the following year. We're all getting older. We've cried enough tears of joy at weddings to make an arroyo flow. We're less committed to living like dirtbags and more committed to something else. You could call it love or life or adulthood. The word Creeksgiving, however, remains part of the lexicon, and climbers still gather under its name. Every autumn, I see the forum post. Who's going to Creeksgiving this year? I was fortunate to partake in this absurd celebration when climbers with wigs took whimsical whippers and we danced as if no one was watching. Creeksgiving was our own little golden age, encapsulated in magic and reverie, a point in time where if a man in a golden cape had simply taken flight into the heavens or disappeared into the rock, I wouldn't have been surprised. It never occurred to me that these moments could simply vanish, or that any one of us could. We never do. If we're living right, we simply live in the moment. I wish I could say I hold on to some ideal parting image of Adam. Say that perfect instant atop a sandstone tower where the afterburn of adventure blends with the camaraderie of partnership. Instead, I recall blurry fragments. Adam's house in Salt Lake City days after his death, filled with paperback books, skis, bikes, and one lone flower, still blooming and cared for by his roommates. His lucky piece, the pink tricam, which we barely discovered in a snow patch in front of his house. His quiet voice uttering the best piece of advice he ever gave to me. Just breathe. In the time at the creek when Adam and I sat on a tailgate and saw a shooting star blaze across the sky. In an instant, the object was gone, but countless other stars dotted the sky. We sat there, breathing, dreaming, drifting off towards sleep. Wouldn't it be crazy to witness a comet hit the earth and destroy us all? I asked. All Adam said was, that would be so awesome. I know that in whatever incarnation future Creeksgivings will take, Adam will be there, closest to us when they're scraping up some sandstone crack that cuts deep into raw skin, or running through a desert wash draped in psychedelic hues, or gathering with our faces lit by firelight, a spirit made of stardust illuminated into the moment. That was Creek's Giving. Really fun to reminisce through that one. Also, a bit of a difficult one to read um, for me. This was heavily edited um, when I worked on it with the folks of the Alpinist, and really enjoyed the process. But as time went by, I realized that I really don't like my writing to be heavily edited by another editor. Just a personal choice, and I think that 
things are so heavily edited, it takes away your own personal voice. I think we found a nice um, balance here, but I am reminded that after I did publish this, I kind of stopped doing that type of writing, but I'm really proud that how this one turned out and really fun to reread it here for you all today. Music for this episode is by Devin Dabney. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And I'm Luke Mihal, signing off from Durango, Colorado. Peace. Peace.